Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ages for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Each episode brings you content on the human side of research, health, well-being and community. The Ages for Human is sponsored by the legacy project of the Office of HIV AIDS Network Coordination, HANC. My name is Pedro Icochea and I will be your host today. According to the 2020 U.S. Census Bureau, the number of Latinos, Latinas, and Hispanics living in the United States and Puerto Rico accounts for 18.4% of the overall population, meaning that one in five Americans is Latinx or Hispanic. When it comes to AIDS epidemiology, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, report that one in five of the people living with HIV is Hispanic or Latinx, and one in three of the new HIV diagnoses were among Hispanic or Latinx, according to a report recently released in 2021. This makes the Hispanic and Latinx populations one of the communities most impacted by the HIV epidemic in the United States after the Black and African American communities. To learn more about how the HIV AIDS epidemic is affecting the Hispanic and Latinx communities in the U.S., the Aces for Human participated in the 2022 National Latinx Conference on HIV, HCV, and Substance Use Disorder in Albuquerque, New Mexico in late March. And for this episode, we have invited Pedro Coronado, Jose Angel Romero, Miguel Chon, and Daniel Roque to talk about the conference and their presentations. Pedro, Jose, Miguel, and Daniel, thank you for accepting our invitation to be part of episode six of the Ages for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. We are honored and privileged to have you all here. Let's start with a brief round of introduction so we can get acquainted. Pedro? My name is Pedro Coronado. My gender pronouns are he, him, él. Uh, I'm the, the director for the National Latinx Conference on HIV, HCV, and SUD. We are housed under the Valley AIDS Council Westbrook Clinic, where I do other things over there at the organization on a, on a leadership level. And Jose? Uh, hey, Pedro. It's good to be here with you virtually today. So my name is Jose Angel Romero. I use they and them pronouns, and I'm Mexican and Salvadoran. I've been living with HIV for uh, over eight years now, and I am a HIV racial justice consultant, and I also work full-time at the Pride Foundation uh, in the Northwest doing community advocacy, education, and research there. And I'm excited to talk to you about language justice, which I see as a part of the move to end the HIV epidemic. Miguel? Well, thank you. My name is Miguel Chion, and I'm currently the director of the regional Chigatelli Associates, known as CAI, office in Los Angeles in California, but I'm also the program director for the National HIV Classroom Learning Center. I was originally trained as a medical doctor and I've been working in public health, HIV, and capacity building for over 25 years. And a little bit about my organization is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the quality of health and, and, and care and social services delivered to marginalized populations worldwide since 1979. And the National HIV Classroom Learning Center, which is the one that I'm directing, is a capacity building program that delivers HIV prevention trainings in the whole U.S. and the territories. 
Tania. So my name is Daniel Roque. I'm the Director of Community Health uh, with the Latino Commission on AIDS based in New York City. So to continue the conversation, what are your impressions of the conference? Pedro, as the director of the conference, how do you feel about it? It was a little hectic in the beginning because we always kept thinking like, what happens if once again, we're going to have to shut down, let's say the state of New Mexico shuts down. And even at that, they weren't really having like big, big meetings yet or allowing to have big meetings. So at the end, we just said, you know what, we're just going to do it. At the end of the day, if they say you can't have all these people in person, we will switch to virtual. We all still fly to New Mexico because we already have our pl flights and we're going to lose them. We're going to use them. And then we're still going to host it. We're going to host it like we had everybody there. But it was a little intense and also having to organize now. It's different when you're having to put maybe 80 some different presenters virtually versus having to bring in 60 to 70 presenters to fly in, get hotel rooms and do all of that stuff because the 2021 conference was virtual and it just made it a lot easier in terms of organizing all of the presenters. I think it, if anything, it exceeded our, our expectations. I didn't realize that need for us to see each other again in person. We were all hungry for that. So I, for the most part, I think we got more than what we expected. And you could see <laughs> that people were craving that in-person connection trainings and all that. So, Thank you, Tokaya. And what about you, Jose? How do you feel about this conference? Considering that for many of us, this was the first in-person conference that we attended since the COVID-19 epidemic started. So the National Latinx Conference on HIV, HCV, and SEDs is such a unique and necessary space, in part because there are so few national gatherings dedicated to Latinx health in general. And also because those that do exist often tend to be specific to particular conditions. And this national conference, the one that just happened in Albuquerque and all the previous ones and the future ones are ones that are really taking an intersectional approach to health. So really using that syndemic theory, the idea that there are multiple epidemics that are affecting community members. And this conference is an opportunity for people to really come together from a variety of different public health spaces and talk about their work and be able to build bonds with each other. This particular conference was one of my first gatherings in person during the COVID pandemic. So I felt uh, particularly special as a result of that. And really just being able to bump into people in the hallway again, run into random folks that I hadn't anticipated seeing. It was just such a reminder of how important um, it is to have physical space with each other. Miguel, what are your insights about the conference? The first thing that I can tell you is to be quite honest, was very refreshing because this is the first time participating in person at a conference and reconnecting with a lot of people that I haven't seen for a long time and presenting in that conference. So this was a great opportunity. And I have to say that increasing the access to information that is specific for Latinas, it was very important. What about you, Daniel? I really, really liked the conference. I thought it was really good. I thought it was an amazing networking event. I thought the presentations and the tables, as in the tabling, were really well run, really knowledgeable, very informational. And something like that, I think, attracts high quality people. 
specifically in our industry and it's one event that I'd love to attend every year if they have it. So Pedro, can you tell us about the number of participants, the number of sessions, the logistics of the conference, all those details? In person, we reached the, the 500 mark. We were hoping to get to 700 in person, but we reached like 500 and then virtually we got like, uh, I think closer to 300 people, a little bit over 300 people. So overall, we got like a little bit over 800 people virtually and, and in person, which I was actually surprised. I thought we were going to have less people virtually, but no, we still had a good amount of people that probably can't travel yet or just chose not to. We had close to 80 breakout sessions. This is not our general sessions. I know we had one, two, three, four, five, six of them. The, the concurrent breakout sessions, we had blocks of 10 concurrent breakout sessions uh, happening and it equal to uh, almost 80 of them. We had some presentations on prep uptake, uh, especially for Latinx communities. Some of the stuff we had to go back to basics, like the hep C, at least how to treat the treatment guidelines, syphilis treatment guidelines that gonorrhea and chlamydia once had changed. So those are some of the topics that we definitely made sure that we had on there that are kind of recurring for the most part. We did do a huge emphasis on two things. One was how to use like either social media or how to use media in general to be able to connect with our communities, to provide the services that we provide. And another thing was utilizing Project ECHO as a model for that collaborative community of learning. So we don't hold knowledge in one place, we can be able to expand it, especially when we're working in rural areas. Another key component of this conference is the exhibitors that we bring in. And I always say that those are a huge resource because it doesn't mean that's just pharma. We bring in a little bit of everything, right? Capacity building programs, anyone that can be able to help. So when we have attendees going into the, the exhibit hall, I always emphasize that utilize them because those are resources that, that we have. So if you have a research company that's trying to find more Latinx people to be part of projects and so forth, we we're bringing in like over 500 people and then plus the ones virtually that are working with the population that they want to serve. So these are the connections that they need to make. Um, that, and I think that we need to take advantage of those situations uh, in order for us to get continue to get that representation. Jose, language justice. This is a relatively new concept for me, and your presentation educated me and helped me understand the conceptual framework of language justice. Can you share with our audience what the language justice framework is so they can understand what the framework is about? Yeah. So the workshop that I gave during the national conference was uh, titled Language Justice to End the HIV Epidemic. And this is work that I dedicate to people living with HIV that have been doing advocacy for years, people like uh, Marco Castro Bujorquez, que en paz descanse, you know, RIP that passed last year and was a strong advocate in the movement to do this kind of work around language and the importance of language in our work to end the HIV epidemic and support people living with HIV. What I was presenting on was the framework around language justice, at least my take on it, some data around how language has affected people living with HIV, how it's affected our response, and some possibilities for what we can do as a result of that intersection. And in broad terms, language justice 
is an effort to be able to move beyond access and support the well-being of people who speak multiple languages and engage them in their care beyond medication, beyond their appointments, and actually help them achieve wellness. So what does that mean? So when people often think about language in the context of healthcare, they think about interpretation. And I am a, a Spanish uh, interpreter and translator. And that is one particular type of way in which we can think about this, where if somebody doesn't speak the same language, you need an interpreter to come in and actually do that work. But we are in, an, in a unique moment now where there are actually interpreters who are living with HIV, like myself and others, who are also directly impacted by this work. So it's not just as simple as bringing in another interpreter and having that person interpret for a doctor and a client. You need interpreters who are gonna be trained to actually work with people living with HIV. And you might also want interpretation to be one way in which people can become engaged in their care. And that's what's been really exciting for me. It has been working with people who are living with HIV and letting them see themselves in this work and see that they can actually have something to offer. Maybe not everybody wants to become a medical doctor, but they wanna help contribute to the healthcare system. Language can be one of those ways that people can get involved. And it's really important, right? In that presentation, I shared some data that we have around language and people living with HIV. And current estimates predict that around, or estimate that one in 10 people living with HIV are technically classified as limited English proficient. And so that means that, you know, we have a significant portion of the population of people living with HIV that need language services and would benefit from them. And one in 10 is about 120,000 people. That's a city the size of Berkeley, California, of people that would benefit and need language services to better access their care. But, you know, we're talking about more than just access. It's more about just having an interpreter in the room. It's about being able to enable people to see themselves as leaders in their health. Something I've learned from folks who have been doing language justice work much longer than I have is that if our movements are multilingual, if our people are multilingual, then our movements have to be multilingual. Our response has to be multilingual. And so, you know, hold that fact in your head. If one in 10 people I'm living with HIV might be multilingual, then we should be having a multilingual response. We want to live in this multilingual world. We want to be able to embrace our full selves. And when it comes to our clinical trials, I rarely see a request for participation uh, in a language other than English. So that's one very clear and tangible spot where we can think about language access. Now, when it comes to language justice, it would mean what are we offering folks in that clinical trial? What are we doing to enable folks to be able to communicate with each other that are in that clinical trial? How are we referring to the participants? Language justice also includes evaluation, right? How are we communicating the findings from that clinical trial to the community? So you had access, you might've brought in somebody who's a Spanish speaker, but are you sharing those findings with the community? That's also a part of language justice as well, making sure that the words that need to be shared are, and that people feel comfortable expressing themselves in the language that they'd like to. How did the language justice movement start and when? 
I would say that there have been different waves of language justice that have occurred. And I am definitely not the, the person that would want to define uh, the movement for language justice. But what happened was that there were folks who are social justice organizers. This happened around the time of um, like the 80s and the 90s, particularly during the Central American uh, refugee crisis that was happening in the United States that wanted to offer support services to immigrant community members. And they realized that they needed interpreters. So they brought in interpreters to help them. That's language access. But some of those interpreters um, did not feel like they were prepared enough to be able to address the trauma that some of those uh, refugee and asylum seekers were experiencing and did not know how to fully engage them in support services beyond interpretation. And so they started developing some trainings out of the Highlander Center, which is an organization in Tennessee to help train interpreters to be able to offer interpretation for social justice. Now those interpreters have come together, they call it a language justice movement, and we take part in a variety of other social issues. Now, it so it does have that connection to Latinx, Latin American immigrants, Latinx communities in Spanish. And a lot of times, one of the things that we often think of when we think of interpretation is Spanish, but that's something that I always like to push back on because the highest growing uh, immigrant population in the United States is actually Black uh, immigrants that aren't always coming from Latin America, or even if they are coming from Latin America, they might be speaking other languages like um, Haitian Creole, maybe you're speaking Portuguese. And so there's been this work to really make it as expansive as possible and offer a variety of language services. And, and you know, folks might know from public access TV, if you've ever watched like C-SPAN, that there's often ASL interpreters doing sign language interpretation. And that was also a movement of people that have been organizing to be able to offer that service to community members. So sometimes it's happening in different growths and spurts, but it's really like a garden with just different flowers blooming. And I think we really just have the opportunity to take it all in, savor, and try to add some more water um, to it and, and help, our, help us really grow and make it as beautiful as possible. Thank you, Jose, for such enlightening description of the language justice movement. And now, changing gears, Miguel, can you talk to us about your presentation at the conference? Our organization, as I mentioned earlier, provides the trainings that, uh, for the intervention that the CDC is sponsoring. And what we presented were basically the lessons learned that we had when we converted all of these in-person trainings to a virtual platform. As, as I mentioned earlier, we are funded by the CDC to provide HIV uh, prevention trainings to the prevention workforce in the U.S. and territories. And here we're going to include Puerto Rico because it is important to mention that Puerto Rico is one of the priority jurisdictions for the ending of the HIV epidemic initiative. And it is it's a case I'm going to mention a little bit more in detail barriers or challenges to have access to these trainings. So initially in the past, when we started in 2019, we used to travel and provide the trainings in person. But when we were hit by the COVID uh, pandemic, we stopped traveling. That means that the HIV prevention providers didn't receive any more trainings, but they never stopped working. 
So we see the need to convert all of our in-person trainings because we needed to go back to provide access to these trainings. And we converted these in-person trainings to a virtual platform. And we were very successful. By this March, we converted 10 different trainings. We translated four of those trainings to Spanish, and we are looking forward to translating more. And we were able to provide 290 trainings to over 1,600 HIV prevention professional providers. This is a huge number, and the level of satisfaction was really high. Going back to our brothers and sisters from Puerto Rico, they are facing a reality that not all the prevention providers have the same access to technologies. And this is one aspect. We're not talking only the need for uh, trainings in Spanish, but also if we are providing the trainings in a virtual platform, we know that they are still recovering from Hurricane Maria and Rita, and they're facing a lot of challenges. The electric power grid is unstable. The same thing about internet. Some of these providers do not have personal computers or they don't have audiovisual capabilities during the trainings. And all of these capabilities are needed for successful virtual trainings. So what we did is reaching out to the health department in Puerto Rico and discuss what are the challenges and opportunities that we may have here. And what we agree with the health department is one, we're gonna keep a channel of communication open constantly. We're gonna identify and prioritize the needs and create solutions together. Um, the solutions were to develop an agreement to lend tablets with those audiovisual capabilities to the participants who don't have a computer or don't have the cameras or, or microphones or whatever is needed for the trainings. And we're gonna coordinate calendars to schedule trainings when they are appropriate. And also that trigger us to initiate more translation of trainings. And I'm gonna say also that it's not only Puerto Rico. We have been conducting other trainings where we have Latinas uh, regist registering for this training and participating and, and claiming we can understand English, everything, when it was time to practice, to do these activities or exercises, they were not able to do it. So we need trainings in Spanish for people who speak Spanish. Now, now, I also want to say that this experience not only shows us the challenges that our Latinas communities have, but also how resilient they were. Because what I observed during the trainings is that when they have some connectivity issues during the training, they immediately jump into the cell phones or any other devices to compensate for that poor connectivity. So they were really resourceful, and when they participated, they relied on the enthusiasm that they have to make this experience successful. So we learned a lot of lessons during this process of converting and delivering virtual trainings. And what is important here is that we can use all those lessons learned to continue providing access to uh, these resources in HIV prevention for our communities. Thank you, Miguel. One other important session at the Latinx Conference on HIV was the presentation of the National Hispanic and Latinx Health Policy Agenda for 2022-2024, produced by the Latino Commission on AIDS. 
and to talk about this relevant document, we have invited Daniel Roque. So Daniel, can you talk to us about this document and tell us why was this agenda produced? I think to start, and I'm going to have you repeat all those questions again just in case, but I think to start, why was this agenda produced is one of the most important questions because once we know the why, we can talk about what it is and who it serves or et cetera. The agenda was truly formed out of the need to address issues that affect our population specifically, right? So Hispanic Latinx people make up about 18.4% of the U.S. population. But when it comes to health research or conversations regarding healthcare, it's, it's unequal. We're not as represented as we should be. So the agenda was really developed to provide special attention to these communities in order to mitigate disease burdens and also to address the nation's changing demographics. So inside of the document, there are a list of recommendations that we have given to Congress or that are directed towards Congress, some of which include a fully funding a plan to end HIV in America by 2030, which the Biden administration, I think, currently has a plan to do so, protecting and expanding Medicaid, protect LGBTQ plus access to healthcare and support services without discrimination. There's a whole list of recommendations. And our goal mainly is to push for those recommendations. Tanya, does the agenda include considerations with regards to HIV AIDS research as part of a strategy to end the HIV epidemic? Our main considerations uh, regarding HIV AIDS clinical research is mostly just to improve uh, clinical out outcomes and achieve an AIDS-free generation. And we believe that HIV research must address uh, disparities and HIV outcomes among Hispanic Latinx people, which are the largest ethnic and racial minority population in the U.S., and in include issues such as immigration status and cultural issues that are factors to influence HIV care utilization. So really just an inclusive process when it comes to HIV clinical research is something we're really strongly advocating for. Thank you, Daniel. Important contribution by the Latino Commission on AIDS. These have been three themes of the various topics that were covered in this unique conference focus on Latinx. But since we are approaching the end of this episode, I wanted to ask you if you have any final remarks. Pedro, any final thoughts? We always have uh, uh, simultaneous translation services available at our conference. So we always tell people, don't worry that maybe you want to present in Spanish, we're going to have a translator. or we have the sessions in English, it's okay, you can be able to attend our conference because there's going to be translation services for every single session. This is something that we always want to make sure that everybody is part of and can be able to get the most out of. So if you didn't get a chance to join us or have never had a chance to join our conference, we're going to be in New Orleans next year. So hopefully we get to see you all in New Orleans, April, 2023. Thank you, Pedro. Miguel. Any final remarks? During this shutdown that we have in 2020, we have to move into sometimes urgent or emergency mode. And I think we have learned a lot, but also we have seen some issues being enhanced or worsened by the pandemic. As I mentioned, the Latinas have been uh, disproportionately affected. So one more 
problem added to our communities. And we learn a lot about using these distance technologies. And I believe that now that the pandemic, hopefully the pandemic has stabilized and we have some degree of normality or going back to something more normal in some areas, I believe that we're not necessarily going to change back as how we used to do things, but maybe with this lesson learned, we can use what we learned during that time, but also be more human and doing things closer to our communities. Thank you, Miguel. Jose, your final remarks? I just want to say that as a reminder, I shared this during um, the workshop. There is no official language of the United States, and I think that that is a beautiful thing, and I don't think that there actually should be. And so just a reminder that wherever you are, there are people speaking languages other than English, and there are people who are interpreting and translating those languages. We just have to look for them, support them, and engage them. And that's part of our work to end the HIV epidemic. It's part of our work to reimagine research and really contribute to a healthier future for us all. Thank you, Jose. Daniel? No final remarks. The conference was really, really great. That's my final remark. Brief and sweet. Thank you, Daniel. Pedro, Miguel, Daniel, and Jose, thank you so much for accepting our invitation to this episode of The H is for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. This has been a lot of fun and hope you have enjoyed it as much as I did. And to our audience, please stay tuned for another episode of The H is for Human. Do not forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your acquaintances, colleagues, friends, and family. And with me, it will be until next time in a new episode of The H is for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Mm-hmm.